In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. both uh broken our no covid streaks as far as we know we broke it together caught the same train as the same strain as besties do got it in brazil you know it it was quarantined together with our mutual illnesses seeing each other just be like sick and coughing and have an endless like you know like (laughs) endless uh, stream of snot um, it was, My it was endless snot. Um, yeah, it was so real, and I feel like we were both so cl- we were both trying to not be babies because we both really wanted to be babies because we felt terrible and we were not at home, you know. Like, and feeling sick when you're not in your home is just like, and you're in a foreign country and like a whole level of hurt. It was bro, it was miserable. I mean, the wedding was fun before that, it was. Um, but it was also a petri dish <laughs> of germs. It was also a petri dish, um, you know. In some ways, like it, the COVID <laughs> was inevitable. You know, I feel like it really was. Um, was. Yeah. When you think but about we, a destination yeah. wedding, where yes, international the, um, entire uh, party, including like so, the, like the actual like wedding party and their guests are all staying on the same property yep. in close quarters yep. sharing meals over the same tables all traveling from different places all traveling like, from different places around the world really yup I mean, um, people came in from all parts of Brazil people came in from all over the US people came in from Europe like from Spain yeah it was just right we were bringing all of the potential different Omicron strains together. To we created a, like a super strain. We created a super strain and then it was like a super spreader because the day that we all were farming back out to our respective journeys to like explore and do different things was when everyone started to learn slowly but surely that we all had COVID. Yeah. And it was just yeah. all playing out on a WhatsApp thread. The I'm WhatsApp positive. thread was no, popping. I'm positive. I'm positive. No, I'm positive. <laughs> I just tested positive too. Yeah. It wasn't great. Um, shout out to our friend in the pharmacy who was like so helpful. He was so sweet. Caitlin and I do not speak the Portuguese. And no, we don't. We needed to secure medications to aid in our recovery. And they now make genius apps like Google Translate mm-hmm. and others where you can type in what you would like to say and it translates it for you with probably anywhere from like 80 to 90% accuracy. Enough that he understood the things that we needed and he was able to look at the phone and read what it said and help us. So thank you, pharmacist. He was such a sweetie pie. My favorite part was when you were like, I need to get a sleep med to knock me out on the plane. And you asked, you, like, you were trying to figure out like how to type that out in a way that made sense. And you were just like, do you have something to put you to sleep? And didn't he say, and he, and he was like, only take one. He, like, he yeah. gave you the bottle yeah. and he was like, only take one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so funny. 
Um, how has that experience, has it changed your feelings about the pandemic, about COVID? Has it changed your behavior um, at all? I just came back from a work trip to Oakland. So despite right. really wanting to ramp down travel after something like Brazil happened, I had to get back out there. Um, and oh so I did it. And I came back and assuming that there's like this period of a few weeks where you, the antibodies are still working. I think I, I think the travel likely still fell in that window. Um, if anything, I'm like more cautious about everything just because yeah, like me too. I now have a new appreciation for what mild means when people say they have mild symptoms. And mild symptoms are still very... It's still unpleasant. a bad cold. Yeah. And to someone who struggles with anxiety, mild symptoms still means panic attacks. And so as, mm-hmm. like, I was moving through different phases of the illness, like, I was having panic attacks. I didn't know new, that. At, at new symptoms. Yeah. It mostly happened once I got home. Oh, honey. I didn't know that. Yeah. But, like, when the cough was, when the cough was like, creating... That's the other thing, y'all. I understand now, I mean, it shouldn't take lived experience to fully understand it because we've been hearing this for over two years now. But like, I do think like when when you have serious COVID, it's because you like literally drown in your own mucus. In your own mucus. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> like the amount of mucus that was like in my respiratory tract was unprecedented. Like it didn't matter how many times I blew my nose, how many times I coughed up stuff, there was more there and it was making it hard to swallow. Which is why, like, I was like, I get it. Like, you can't breathe. Like, the Mm -hmm. mucus interferes with your ability to breathe. Like, I was just, and I was taking that regimen, Paxlovid, which which I'm grateful for because it could have escalated probably more. Like, given how serious it was without Paxlovid or with Paxlovid, I'm like, what would this look like without it? Um, So, yeah, I just haven't, I don't want people that are very casual of like, everyone's going to get COVID. Like, whatever, at least it's reducing risk of hospitalization. I'm like, no, we should still be trying to reduce the risk of COVID transmission as much as possible. Right. It's deeply unpleasant. It is still unpredictable. We still don't know the impacts of long COVID. Like, there's long enough COVID unknowns sucks. that we should be very careful. And so, um, I like, that's one truth. And like others, like, I'm tired of this pandemic, right? And yep. so my my like mental muscles around like automatically remembering to bring my mask anywhere I go. That's where I keep sli- mine. Is slipping. Like I used to be used yeah. to be automatic as part of my uniform, like wouldn't step into the hallway right. in my apartment building without yeah. my my readiness around my masking. Yeah. And now it's like nine times out of ten I forget it and I have to go back and remind myself to bring it. I understand. I will say um, on that note, it was really stressful when I was infected to like, because I live with a roommate. Um, Thankfully, we live in a house. Um, She was, you know, she was like, okay, we'll just be super cautious. We'll text each other like when we're going to, you know, move about the house and whatnot. We'll wear masks in... um, common spaces with the exception of the kitchen she was super on not the kitchen with the exception of the the bathroom you know can't wear a mask in the shower but um she was also thankfully like very understanding she was like you know if you if you're alone in a space in the house and you need to go maskless like because you're so congested and you can't breathe like 
just I, I that's fine you know um but man I was like so paranoid about infecting other people it was kind of brutal and I think the hardest thing about because we got we got a very beast we got a beast of a strain um and I could tell that just by how long it hung around in my body you know um like I've had worse colds before than than the symptoms of COVID but you knock them out like in a few days you know what I mean this was like I was symptomatic for a full week and then after that once I started testing negative I was still fucking congested for like two more weeks after that there was congestion that just would not go away to Mia's point about the mucus that never ends never ends like never I mean I'm talking about blowing my nose multiple times like yeah fully draining like fully filling the tissue like just and you were hocking up some like oh some yeah. loogies my friend I was moved to vomiting <laughs> multiple times yeah <laughs> yeah wet cough I, is the fucking worst man yeah cause I get so worst. disgusted by my own like mucus production that I vomit I'm a monster <laughs> 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 It was funny, but it was funny though because we had slightly different symptoms. Because um, I was, mine was like I was just dripping from my nose, like it would not. I was a fountain, and I was dripping. I was actively dripping into my mask at the airport. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It was gross. I was like, this mask is gonna be like sopping wet <laughs> when I take it off. It's gonna be fucking gross. <laughs> so uh, yeah, those are the gory details. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't pretty. Um, yeah. Thankfully, just the way it fell on our trip and then um, the time I had taken off, like by the time I was prepared to come back to work, I, I mean, I did take the Monday that we were supposed to come back. Um, and I still took that day. But after that, like I felt well enough to kind of resume my normal routine and get back to work. Same. And, and, you know, obviously, I'm not, I don't want to signal to the world that, like, you shouldn't take the time. Like, you know, if it I know. had taken more time, I would have taken more time. Fucking Virgo um, vibes. Definitely have to yeah. prioritize your health in moments like that. Um, and I've had some poor models. Like, I've seen peers and colleagues, like, yep. over the last two and a half years, like, occasionally, like, try to push through or, like, work through COVID. And they've all shared, like, they wish they had taken more time and not tried to rush back and... Because what your body really needs to heal is the rest. Yes. And I do feel like the way, although uh, it was uncomfortable, like what we did get a premium on um, together was rest. And then when mm-hmm. I came home, it was more of the same. Like I just, if anything, flying set us back because. Yes, that was brutal. Because we had been resting. And then all of a sudden it was like 12 hours of disruption and travel. I could not. Like being on a plane on a fucking red eye for 10 hours. I mean, and, you know, I, I have to give it give it up to you because you actually had a layover. You had to connect, um, which would have been, like, even harder for me. But, um, yeah, and I don't, I can't sleep on a plane. Like, I'm physically incapable of sleeping on a plane. Um, so I was literally just, like, counting the minutes, like, counting the hours until I could be in my own bed. And we were both, like, texting each other. <laughs> As we were getting off the plane, just like, I can't wait to be in my own bed. Yeah, it's miserable to be that sick and not be at home. It's the worst. <sighs> yeah. Um, okay. So we are here today to officially throw fisticuffs over 
a film franchise that you know has has caused friction in our friendship. You would describe many it as having caused friction no. in our friendship I'm be, I'm for being, many I'm years. Tr- I'm trying to like create dramatic tension. Okay. okay. Um, so let's just just pretend. You know, like we've thrown drinks in each other's faces. <laughs> we walked out on a meal at Applebee's. No, that was another situation. That was um, different. That was different. <laughs> but we've we've let's just say we've we've disagreed on 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 you know on this franchise when okay. it comes to franchise and even calling it a franchise is like generous because it's only two films. It's an original and it's sequel, and this is My Girl One and My Girl Two. Yeah. This is what we're discussing today. Um, we were, I mean, we still are going to approach this not unlike a court case. And for that reason, I'm kind of at a disadvantage because Mia's actually studied the law, whereas I have not. My, my the, the extent of my law knowledge is like maybe a, an episode or two of SUV, SVU, SUV. I was was to to just really be clear to the audience. I was never planning to become a litigator. Those are the scariest types of lawyers. And so I, you know, I'm not going to be bringing like the most refined like artistry of litigating to this discussion. There will be theatrics. There will be drama. (laughs) There will be be passionate arguments thrown. But will we be following any sort of semblance of civil procedure? No. (laughs) I wrote an opening statement and a closing statement. And that's That's about it. That's the extent of it. There you go. And they're not really like... There will be rebuttals. There will be objections. But they will not follow evidentiary procedure either. <laughs> so it'll basically just be some legalese and some arguing and some laughter. That's the package. <laughs> that made me want to bust out into the um, the Growing Pains theme song. Why? Sharing the laughter and love. I don't oh, know why. why. I that, don't know why. That's why. Show me that smile. Don't waste another minute. Crying. I mean, when I'm feeling like when I get torn. This is when I get torn because we have these thematic arcs that we follow, and I want to blow it up and do a theme song episode. Cause Let's fucking do pain, it. Going pain. Let's fucking do it. Growing pains is bringing up feelings, and you know how I feel about the Hogan family. Hogan family. Hogan family theme song deserves its own three-part episode, <laughs> where we do a deep dive into the lyrics. Uh, uh, every song. lyric, every every. Oh. Uh. It's like the "Show Me Love" by Robin S. Oh, oh, theme song. Theme song. <laughs> All right, but we. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna we're, let's do that then. Let's just do a fucking TV we theme gotta, song. We, gotta, gotta, we had it. We had it on the calendar. We just I think we took it off because we were like we gotta stay with the theme. But we did that break last season where we did the uns uns in the yeah, middle okay. of great. doing um, the L board. So there you go. We can so do it next week. If break you want. it up. Let's just. I feel energy. I have energy around it. Ren, let's do what we got energy around. Okay, I so I, because I'm taking the the side of my girl, the OG, I assumed yeah. that I would be the prosecution. That was my assumption. Sure. Well, you're the, you're the, you're the, you're the, you're the plaintiff. 
We're not in I'm the plaintiff. We're not in criminal court, but yeah. I'm the plaintiff. Yes, thank yeah. you. See, I don't, you know. Yeah, you're so, going to be the plaintiff. I'm arguing in favor of the plaintiff. Yes, and you know, you're accusing me of I don't even know, some type of like of being inferior. Of being inferior, yeah, that's all. Like, yeah, there you go. And that's that's the charge and I have to defend my girl too. Which brings me joy because I think it's very defensible. Oh my god, you're going to be so much more articulate than I am. I'm looking at my quote opening statement and it's literally just like nonsensical, like all caps, like little notes. So like don't expect any like semblance of, you know, reason here or articulate articulation whatever. It's fine. Ooh. It's fine. <laughs> right. I'm so not ready for this. But I'm going to do it anyway. I love it. All right. I'm here to argue that My Girl, the original film, is superior to its sequel, My Girl 2. We all know that origin stories are always superior. You can't have a sequel without the original. It laid the foundation for what would ultimately be completely sullied by My Girl 2. We also all know that preteen stories trump teen stories. Preteen is when the hormones are raging. We've already talked about this on this podcast, that this is when you come into your identity. You come into, you know, you start having crushes. You start having feelings. Everything is heightened, you know? It's those ages of 10, 11, 12. And then when you become a teenager, you just become a pain in the ass, a very hormonal, trashy pain in the ass especially if you're a boy. So you've seen this play out in the Stranger Things series. You know, we all love these little kids, season one, season two. Once they started making out with each other and turning into teenagers, the show is just not as lovable because they are not as lovable, the characters. The soundtrack. (laughs) Motown. Motown Philly back again. (laughs) You know, every song a hit. And not just, you know, the popular music of the Motown era that was in this movie. It was also the instrumental soundtrack, the original orchestral soundtrack of My Girl One is so emotional. It adds to every single moment that we see of Veda Soltenfuss's life. My Girl One, it gave us every iconic moment of the franchise including the most heartbreaking series of events committed to film in film history. I have a graduate degree in film history, so I am an authority on this. The main character, the protagonist, Veda Sultanfuss, she was at peak pre-goth hypochondriac weirdo in the first film. The first film is a dark comedy starring an 11-year-old girl in the early 90s. That's amazing. When have we seen that since then? Never. My Girl One gave us Thomas J. My Girl One gave us Grandmu. My Girl One gave us Mr. Bixler, who is and always will be 1970s hot. But, you know, I understand why some people would say that they prefer My Girl too. you know? It 
is kind of a budding love story. It's 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 a story of first love and it's a story of, you know, a young girl who lost her mother, figuring out who her mother is. It's it's more positive than the first film. But I would say that anyone who prefers that story over the story of My Girl 1, a young hypochondriac weirdo 11-year-old girl getting her period for the first time, dealing with her father getting a new girlfriend after the death of her mother, dealing with the death of her best friend in the whole world, I would go so far as to say that anyone who prefers My Girl 2 over that cannot handle the harsh realities of life and death. In closing, I will say... There's a reason. There's a reason. We had a My Girl 2, but not a My Girl 3. The original My Girl laid a beautiful, unforgettable foundation that went on to be tarnished by its sequel. The prosecution rests. No, the prosecution doesn't rest. That happens at the end, right? Wow. Wow. Um, I have, the defense always has the double burden of both being compelling in its original arguments and responding point to point to the absurdity that comes out of the mouth of the plaintiff. Wow! <laughs> Holy God. And. All right, I'm going to be quiet. Sorry. If, 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 I want to concede at the beginning that if my arguments here are weak, they are weak because of that double burden a burden that is hard to overcome but i want to reframe this conversation from the very beginning she framed it as a bitter battle between two friends who duked it out before over my girl one and my girl two and i want to re-invite us to a different space <laughs> this space is the dance floor <laughs> <laughs> Come on and dance. Come on and dance. <laughs> Let's make some romance. Let's make some romance, okay? You know the night is falling and the music is calling and we've got to get down to swing town. That is the energy of My Girl 2. Stephen Holden of the New York Times commended the film as appealingly sentimental, adding that where the first movie forced Veda to face some jarring realities, which I will concede, as plaintiffs stated in their opening statement, that is fact. Jarring realities, a best friend's death, a grandmother's senility, a crush's adulthood, making it grossly inappropriate to have that crush in the first place. <laughs> the end of the film, as she also alluded to, was heavily salted with mortuary humor. The atmosphere of the sequel is softer and more golden. I would like to remind you listeners that while My Girl 2 brought us Thomas J., my, sorry, My Girl 1 brought us Thomas J. My Girl 1 killed Thomas J. Wow. My Girl 1 brought us Mr. Bixler. My Girl 1 <laughs> killed her first crush. 
on Mr. Bixler. Okay, whereas My Girl 2 is a nostalgic valentine to the histories that we come to know as we learn our parents and our ancestry, the mysteries that come to life when we explore our freedom as young people, the mysteries that come to life when we explore Los Angeles, a city in the sun. In the 70s, it was a post-hippie lotus land. And we get to explore that through the eyes of a wise, precocious teenager. So, whereas I can't dispute that My Girl One has its place in history, for the rest of today, I will be arguing that My Girl Two is the film that has the sweeter legacy. You leave My Girl One, you're fucking depressed as fuck. You leave My Girl 2, you're excited about Beta's future. You're excited about first kisses and jewelry and barbaric customs that she's starting to form with her first boyfriend. You're filled with the possibilities of teen love versus the painful sting of death, pun intended, (laughs) that comes from the horrific death by B of Thomas J. So, I'm going to wrap it up where I started. My Girl One reeks of negativity. It even led my co-host to frame this conversation as a bitter knockout battle. But I want you, listener, to dance with me in this conversation and to dance to the disco music that lights up the film, (laughs) My Girl Two. Okay, because the 70s is where it's at musically. You have Our House, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. You got Dr. My Eyes, Jackson Brown. You got Elton John with a double header, Benny and the Jets and Tiny Dancer. They even threw in some Beach Boys for good measure. Don't worry, baby. Which, by the way, is the theme of the film. Don't worry, baby. Everything will be all right. And with that, the defense has defended. (laughs) So, I turn it over to you if you have any, you know, additional claims you'd like to put into evidence or whatever. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Wow. That was way harsh, Ty. I may need a moment because I'm trying to recall something. For the first oh, time. actually, while she's doing that, one other well, thing. Wow, no, you, you finished. Thing. You finished. <laughs> the other thing I forgot to say. Objection, Your <laughs> Honor. <laughs> On the ground of Brooklyn, Your Honor, when, <laughs> when she was talking about how uh, originals are always better than the sequel. Tell that oh, to Godfather 2. Tell that well, to Godfather 2. Well, well, well. The defense pauses <laughs> oh damn all right I, I need a minute to uh gather <sighs> we're ready for a rebuttal okay we're coming out of uh what's i don't know discussion great the prosecution team <sighs> which is me and rosie so 
I will concede that oh. sequels are not only not always inferior. As you said, Godfather 2, clearly superior to the original Godfather, in my shared opinion. Wayne's World 2, Ace Ventura 2, When Nature Calls. Hmm. These are sequels that I prefer to their original. (sighs) I'd also like to say that you presented a really interesting allegory in your argument you talked about, you know, the, um, the the difficulty of the defense having to follow up after the prosecution's original argument. And, you know, that that's an interesting allegory for uh, a sequel following up on an original, you know, and it's, it's kind of it's kind of an easy it's an easy excuse, isn't it? It's a really easy built in excuse for not having as compelling of an argument why the second film is better. It's interesting. It's interesting to me. Wow, you went meta on that. I did. Sure did. Sure did. It's film theory, bitch. <coughs> film theory. <coughs> when you so... What's the word I'm looking for? Um... Oh, my God. What's the word? Damn it. Okay. Can't think of it. Okay. When you so harshly... The way you so harshly put it, my girl one killed Thomas J. I would actually say that if my girl one killed Thomas J, my girl two desecrated his memory. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because we all know the scene where Veda's first quote love or the the first boyfriend she's about to have this nick character please don't played by played by austin o'brien who who the fuck remembers that kid who the fuck remembers he's a character he's literally a fictional character what else you're saying it you're saying it's a rise of late i've never used that word okay fine all right you know you know okay you know what that word means all right so in in my girl so my girl one Thomas J is slain by bees. by a pack of bees, <laughs> by a wild pack of bees, traumatizing all of us for the rest of our lives. My girl two, Veda honors his memory by still wearing the mood ring that he went back and died for to go get it from the woods. She still wears the mood ring. Nick. All right, let, I'll just say it without any, um, without any, uh, what's the word? I can't think of anything. Without any acid in my tongue. Thank you. Nick. Thank you. Nick. While they're, while they're playing around at the tar pits, she shares what the mood ring means to her, to Nick. And Nick, this shitty teenage boy, to my earlier point, pretends to accidentally drop the mood ring that her best friend died for into the tar pits. How fucking dare he? How fucking dare you, movie? How fucking dare you do that to Veda? How fucking dare you do that to us? 
even though he didn't actually drop it in there, it's almost worse that he didn't. It's almost worse that he pretended as some sort of sick teenage boy joke to try to get into Veda's pants, which he ultimately kind of does, you know? So if my girl one killed Thomas J, my girl two desecrated his memory. Speaking of which, the lack of continuity in my girl two It is truly like they saw how beautiful of a movie My Girl 1 was and they just said, let's make another one. But let's not, you know, like worry about continuity or anything like that. Let's not worry about Veda's character being the same in the second movie. She turns into a completely different person in the second movie. Yes, she's precocious. Yes, she's she's, you know, very smart, you know, but she's like weirdly uptight in the second movie in a way that she wasn't in the first movie. And it makes no sense to me. And that's it's not just how she's acting. It's like how she's written. It's a total lack of continuity. Also, the actors, the actor who plays Judy, her new friend at the end of My Girl One is not the same actor as in the second movie. You didn't I think, think I would an indictment on my girl one. Why didn't she want to be? Why didn't she want to continue with the franchise? Hmm. Do you know that for a fact that I'm she didn't want to continue with the, with the franchise? And my job is not to prove your point for you. Oh my God. Wow. Wow. <laughs> this is what I mean. Listeners. This is what I mean. This is pen law at work. <laughs> uh, let me let you finish. Wow. <laughs> There was another actor who's not the same in the second movie. And I was trying to look it up. And I don't think I could find it in my notes. But. Sorry. <clears throat> the setting. You mentioned the L.A. setting being a really appealing factor of the second film. I would argue that L.A. was chosen because, as we all know, the film industry is largely based in LA and they just said, Oh, let's find some bullshit excuse okay, for it to take place. I'm not making shit up. This you're, is somebody you're, speaking. You're, you're just like literally like throwing into the atmosphere arguments that are not based in You literally happening. just did that. You literally just did that about point. Judy's actress. I'm not, I, look, I was poking holes in your points. Okay. I wasn't making well, up new points that have no basis in reality. <laughs> It definitely ha- they definitely have a basis in reality. You've seen TV shows and films do this time and time again. They shoot in LA, they find a reason to move things to LA, some story-based reason that we're in LA now because it's easier to fucking shoot in LA and not pretend that it's anywhere is except for boring. LA. Pennsylvania is boring. Wasn't that hard of a stretch for them to imagine that if they wanted to give her a landscape to explore her freedom that she shouldn't do it in western Pennsylvania? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying it was very convenient. Much like mm. your uh, your argument about the being in the defense position as being inherently more difficult. Mm. It was very convenient. Uh, 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 so uh. <laughs> you sort of you finished your 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 point by saying that my girl one's a downer. My girl two is is you know happier. It's a lot more positive. Yeah, on a positive note. Yes, there's tragedy in My Girl One. There's tragedy in life. There's tragedy in all of our lives. We all have to face death at some point. Adulthood. <laughs> we all have to face death at some point. We all have to face disappointment that our crush is actually an adult man who has a fiance and is actually our teacher, so we can't 
want to be with him. Mm. But you have that beautiful coda at the end of My Girl 1 where you sort of have Veda run into Mrs. Senate, Thomas J's mother, and they have that beautiful conversation about like, this is still hard, but you know, we're here and we're, we have each other and we're working through it. And then Veda finds, you know, an, a new friend in Judy who was, you know, a mean girl, an enemy at the beginning of the film. She's hanging out with those bitchy little girls. And then she becomes her friend at the end. My Girl One is ultimately about healing. It's about recovery. My Girl Two didn't even acknowledge that healing On the note of healing, I would say one of the core themes that we are explore in My Girl One is maternal death. Mm-hmm. And we actually do get a full circle moment of healing when you see Jamie Lee Curtis bring a healthy new baby into the world without succumbing to a premature death by baby. Oh, that so, is... The, mm. So I will say that. That's a beautiful point. I'll concede that. I will that. say that while I organize my thoughts. <laughs> um, I want to back up and talk about the richness of the second film's plot. Because, um, I mean, really, if you synthesize the first film, it's like hanging around the house, funeral parlor, dead bodies, park, lake, bees, death, sadness, <laughs> funeral, over. Like, in the middle of all that, my dad's got a new girlfriend. She lives in a camper. Like, that's pretty much the film. My Girl 2 is about a 13-year-old girl searching for identity and independence. And she is tasked with writing about someone she hasn't met but still admires. And she ultimately decides to explore her mother. And I would argue it's the foundation of the experiences she had in the first film around dealing with death and acknowledging the memories of loved ones lost that gives her the courage to more deeply explore her mother's history. And so she chooses her late biological mother, but she knows nothing about her except that she spent a long time in California. And so for spring break, she gets on a plane. She leaves on a jet plane to cite another iconic 70s song. And she goes to visit her Uncle Phil, who is a secret gem of the first film, I might add. And he's here in a renewed... Okay, don't get horny. Don't get horny now. He's here. Don't get horny for Uncle Phil now. He's he's here in an expanded role. Busy, quiet. He's here in an expanded role. I will concede there were some interesting casting choices, like making cinematic legends like Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis take a back seat because they basically had like 10 lines between them. Odd choice. I will concede that. (laughs) But it makes the way for new colorful characters to come into the film. And so, as I was saying, she goes off to LA for spring break. She's introduced to her Uncle Phil's girlfriend's son, Nick. Not character Nick. Not Nick the character. As, We've already been through this. We've already been through this. <laughs> as Caitlin was so like, ran before. Okay. And they spend a week journeying together, exploring the clues all around the city about this woman, Veda's mother. Now, realists may question the wisdom of these two children 
venturing all over LA, going to Hollywood Boulevard after dark. But that's what made the film so, dare I say it, titillating. As an adolescent watching the film, because you you saw what was on the horizon in your teen years, just a little bit more freedom than you had before. And it, they made it look so appetizing. Along the way, they meet a trail of people that all bring interesting personalities and characters to the film. I want to take a beat to bring up Ben Stein, iconic minor role in the film, Bueller, Bueller. He's in it. He's making appearances. That's all I got on that front. <laughs> um, there's the man that her mom was married to before she married her dad. We get his, we get window into his world and, you know, his love of Maggie, her mother. And, you know, um, he still cherishes memories of her. And ultimately what he gives Veda is her greatest gift, which is old reels of, of her mother when she was younger. And her mother was an aspiring actress and musician and creative writ large. And there's all of this film footage showing her captivating everyone around her with her soothing vocals as she sings, smile, mm. smile. Oh. So your heart is aching. I won't do it justice, but smile, folks. Smile good stuff she kind of has like a Marilyn vibe mm, or she feels like she was cast to like I literally just wrote this type <laughs> fucking like low rent Marilyn Monroe that's yeah. what I wrote she was written to like play to a Marilyn type it's just part of the film you know it is what it is it's the 60s you know it happened um and if anything a Marilyn lover such as Caitlin, should appreciate any nod to Marilyn's legacy, which is to say the film is basically saying that for the 60s, the standard of beauty that we are all wrapped around and absorbed in is a Marilyn-esque enigmatic type, which is what we were given, I'll concede in low rent form, but I think it speaks to the broader influence of Marilyn Monroe on our culture. And so, wow, Caitlin needs to sit with that because here she is shitting all over this film that's trying to pay homage to one of her favorite, favorite actors. So that's just that on that. I will not concede anything here because nothing she said in the rebuttal was worth like making concessions around. If anything, if you're telling listeners, she made concessions. She made you made you made a concession. I made one or two. You made one. I'm making no more because there are no more to give. (laughs) Says the person who texted me. We're not bringing bringing, bringing things said on text into evidence. I object, Your Honor. We're not bringing things said on text into evidence. All right, may I rebut? I'm going to rebut. Was My Girl 2 trying to pay homage to Marilyn Monroe or was it trying to exploit her legacy? Just like every fucking thing that's ever featured some low-rent Marilyn Monroe impersonator or even these biopics that are coming out. You know, we all know. We all know it when we see it. 
it's not really trying to do justice oh. to her. It's just trying to like oh, throw wow. a, a blonde at us with a whispery voice going, <laughs> you know, it's not the same. It's not homage. Wow. All right. So the main attraction, as you laid it out, of the second film, the, ma- the main healing action that happens in the second film is this beautiful story around finding out who her mother is. Except, back to my continuity point, the actress that they cast to play her mother in these old, you know, home movies is not the same actress who is in the picture of her mother in the first film. And granted, at that time, they probably just, like, used a picture of any old lady and were just like, all right, we're probably not going to, like, make a second film necessarily, so we don't have to plan this out this far in advance. But they should have thought about that. They should have thought about that. We're going to notice she didn't even have the same vibe at all in that picture as she does in the second film. Lack of continuity. Low rep Marilyn Monroe. I will also say... That even though a lot of healing happens in the second film, the movie is a total fucking snooze fest. When the character of Albert Biedermeyer says, time for my medication and my nap, I said, same, bro. Same. That's how I feel. Let me just lay out some of the iconic moments that the first film gave us. Because it's the opposite of a snooze fest, okay? In the beginning, when Veda is showing all those little boys the the dead body, or she's pretending to show them the dead body in the coffin at the funeral home, and she's like, what are you guys, scared? And that little boy goes, I'm not chicken. He says, chicken. Hilarious. No. That part where her, <laughs> that part where her, her ball, she's like dribbling the basketball in the hallway and then it goes down into the place where they like embalm the bodies and she's scared. She's too scared to go down there. So she gets locked down in the basement and she's like covers her ears. She starts singing do a dumb diddy do. And then Jamie Lee Curtis finds her and she's like, what's the matter? And she goes, my ball. I lost my ball. Iconic. During the dinner scene where she's laying on the floor and Jamie Lee Curtis is like, what's the matter? And she says, I think it's my prostate. Fucking hilarious. Amazing. Bill, I love you so. I always will. I look at you and see the passion eyes of May. Oh, when am I ever gonna see my wedding day? Iconic song. She's singing to her class picture with her teacher's head with a heart around it. Iconic. Veda getting her period. She says to Shelly, I'm hemorrhaging. That's how okay, I learned the word hemorrhaging. I will tee up in a second as part of what makes the film entirely unrealistic. Wow. Okay. I'm hemorrhaging. The hat that Veda wears when she sees the doctor and the way that she takes it off. Iconic. She says to Thomas J, you're like a dog. You just go home to eat. Don't pee on the hydrant. Amazing. The scene with the mean girls that I mentioned where they go, look, Veda and her little boyfriend. She goes, he's not my boyfriend. And then that girl goes, I bet she kissed him on the lips. Iconic. Every single scene in Veda's writing class with Mr. Bixler, Rhonda, he covers me like a blanket from the cold, dark night. 
Flesh a la mesh. I can't fight it. There's just no point. I wake up and light a joint. (laughs) You can never wear enough eyeshadow. The bingo scene. I felt Justin's hangnail. Feel my aura. I don't think I'm allowed to. Hilarious! The part where Jamie Lee Curtis's ex-husband comes into town and then Veda introduces herself and he goes, Veda Sultanfuss? Tough break. She goes, I like my name. To your point, Veda's uncle when Dan Aykroyd punches out the the ex-husband and he goes, your father's a savage. Amazing. The scene with the bumper cars with Bad Moon Rising by Creedence Clearwater Revival playing. Grandma singing, Grandma. it's quarter to three. <laughs> At the funeral, there's no one in the place but just you and me. After Veda gets her period and Thomas J comes calling for her and she pushes him on the ground and she says, and don't come back for five to seven days. It <laughs> slams the door in his face. It's so funny. And then you have these amazingly heartfelt monologues. I don't have to do the funeral monologue. I did it in our last episode. (laughs) But even Shelly gets this amazing monologue to Dan Aykroyd where she says, open your eyes. She's 11 years old. Can't wait to come back to that as an example of parental neglect, which reeks throughout Megaro 1. Dan Aykroyd as a father. Oh, my God. I will concede that it's in my notes. (laughs) He's, He's doing an awful job. I will concede that. But he's also in, he's still like. It's what she says to him. He spends more time with the dead than the living. He has to learn a lesson. People can't be perfect. Are you perfect? Wow. Do you want your characters to be perfect? I would rather see a character who's imperfect, who learns a lesson from the with woman he's about to marry. Beta is the it's, lesson. He's raising a hypochondriac. It's evidence. Clinically but it's, Here's Ill. the thing, though. Shelly's the one to call him out. She's his future wife, and she's Veda's future stepmom. So it's, it's evidence that they're meant to be co-parenting together. All right. I, th- I, think, I'm, I think I'm done with that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Tell me about what a bad de- father Harry is. Harry Saltonfuss. Well, before we go there... It's already been almost an hour. I just want to say really quickly, a lot of the plot points that you anchored on as iconic were unreal. Like an 11-year-old girl talking about how she's hemorrhaging. No. We talked about getting our periods. And we made up all manner of different words May I object, Your Honor? We were not talking about it as hemorrhaging okay may she's i object your honor not, it's not 11 year old language oh she's she's already breezed through the reading list second week of summer and now she's reading war and peace may oh, i object your okay. honor i'm gonna throw out two lines from my girl Two that veda says that actually come out of her mouth are you suffering from a chemical imbalance or is it just an attitude problem and the other one i love the fragrance of vintage books so you're making my What 13-year-old says that You're shit? making my points for me. Thank you very much. Okay? She says she likes to hang out with people who are intellectually stimulating. <laughs> Nobody does at 11. <laughs> okay? She was just trying to, like, make herself feel better after these girls made her feel like shit. Great. Well, <laughs> you know what? 
That brings me back to what else made me feel like shit watching this movie, and it's Dan Aykroyd's portrayal of a father. Oof. Okay, he is he is absent. <laughs> he is emotionally yes. void. He is missing, and you know, I mean, it's criminal almost to. I mean, like. I'm almost, I can't even put it into words. It's, it makes me speechless. Like, I mean, his girl is just going through all the motions of pre-puberty and puberty, and he's just none the wiser. But it's a great turn in the second film to see him much more emotionally connected to the point where he's giving her bounded freedom. He's giving her a space to explore parts of their shared history that he's been too overwhelmed emotionally to explore. He says, Freda, please go learn about your mother. Okay, Dan Aykroyd in the first film wouldn't have made that space for her. Okay, so what we get in My Girl 2 is an evolved father ready to take on more as his baby is almost due. And as they say, when your family grows, your heart grows. And you see that in My Girl 2. My Girl 2 is a redemption of a neglectful father. I only have one thing to say in response to that, and it's that you have fallen into the trap that many film critics fall into, which is you're criticizing the characters and not the film. Are the characterizations not part of the film? It's not characterization. You're criticizing the characters. Yes, he's a neglectful father in the first film. The film acknowledges that. You're criticizing him. You're criticizing Harry as a person who has flaws. He's a human being. He's not perfect. Okay. And I'm talking about the way that the writers chose to give him a redemption arc in the sequel. Still doesn't make the first film inferior. It does. It does. No, it does. <laughs> it does. All right. I have a closing statement. Are we ready for closing statements? We can. We can close. We can close. Wow. Okay. Um, I mean, I also have a lot of other things to say. I feel like we need to have like just a regular conversation about these films, um, <laughs> where we're not trying to like defeat each other. <laughs> So, my closing statement is, to quote SNL's Stefan, this movie has everything. They don't make movies like My Girl 1 anymore. They never did before, and they probably never will again. It may be the first time we saw a young girl get her period in a family-oriented studio Hollywood film. It's about the death of innocence. It's about a young artist developing her voice. Again, another thing that's dropped in the second film, lack of continuity. She's not even writing anymore in the second film. It's a very nuanced coming-of-age love story. Thomas J is clearly in love with Veda, but her feelings for him are like kind of a question mark, probably not quite there, which is not something that we often see. More than that, it captures not only a time in history and adolescence, but a time and emotional world from my own adolescence when this movie came out in 1991. My Girl, the original, and Anna Klumsky, 
single-handedly made me want to be an actor. And for that, I owe it everything. Also, I learned the phrase in lieu of from this film. And for that reason alone, it's invaluable as an educational tool. In My Girl 2, Nick derisively, derisively, however you pronounce it, calls Veda a chick from Pennsylvania who wears a mood ring. What the fuck did you say, my guy? <clears throat> He's so disrespectful to Thomas J's legacy. He's disrespectful to Veda. He doesn't deserve to kiss her at the end of the movie with his hair blowing with a fan like Beyonce in the jetway. Nick also looks like a young lesbian to me. And maybe that's why you love this film, Mia. The prosecution rests. Look. Maybe, maybe that is why I love this film. I will concede that. And in my closing statement, I will acknowledge that most of this was an intellectual exercise. As long before, as she already teased for you listeners, long before we had this conversation, I already conceded via text that my girl one is the superior film. However! <laughs> almost fell out of my chair. Oh my God. For argument's sake. It's going to be really hard Can to Can we just remember how we all felt at the end of My Girl One? Distraught, bereft, alone, t- scared for our futures, feeling all the stages of grief simultaneously. Where did we leave the theater feeling after My Girl 2? A little horny. A little, ex- <laughs> a little excited about first kisses. Okay. And everybody knows I have baby fever all the time. My Girl 2 ends with Veda hugging her new baby brother. And singing that fucking song. And singing Smile. (laughs) But we get baby images, which automatically gives the film five stars. So there you go. My Girl 1, according to... Official film critique might eek by My Girl 2. But My Girl 2 holds its own. Because it's not trying to be compared to the original. It's trying to evolve and move her forward. The end. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, this was fun. Who's going to (laughs) decide? I think like our history, history has decided it's my girl one. That sounds like a <laughs> sounds like a, a a Hamilton quote, a Hamilton lyric. History has decided something that. So, I mean, I think about this all the time, and like people talk about it in pop culture all the time. How like trends are are cyclical. You know what I mean? How it's like every thirty years, like we go into this like deep nostalgia. Um, or like every decade you go like 30 years back or whatever so remember in like the 80s and even the 90s we were really like nostalgic for the pop culture of 50s and 60s and you had all these happy days 
Yeah, and so many like every coming of age movie from that time period takes place during that time. Like you know, the like the Sandlot, Elijah Dishko, Elijah. Yes, <laughs> um, that night. There you go. Amazing. I can't wait to talk about that movie. Um, I did a deep dive on uh, Juliette Lewis. I'm really mm-hmm. excited to talk about that movie. But um, yeah, and it's I, it's basically like so right now. For example, the Indians are trying to come to America. <laughs> but what about the strain on our resources? <laughs> um, I'm not going to do that monologue, even though I want to. But uh, yeah, and now, like, similarly, we're going back to the 80s and the 90s, or we have been going back to the 80s and 90s for, like, the last, like, 15 years, basically. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. It's like, I... I see these movies as being like very true to those eras, but I wonder if people who actually live through them are looking at it the way I look at some like 80s and 90s shit where I'm just like, this is laying it on way thick, like with the nostalgia and the period. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think I've had that, that a lot. I've, I've had that question. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. The second movie feels so 70s. It's like very, like the. The, um, although I guess like a lot of the stuff that Shelly wears in the first movie is like super 70s. She has like the bell bottoms mm-hmm. and those amazing outfits. Ugh. My Girl, the original My Girl is, I mean, we, we probably talked about this. It's literally, I think, the number one movie. If I need to cry, like I will watch that movie and I will watch... The, oh, that yeah. sequence of scenes where because I cry every time without fail and I feel like the older I get the more I cry because um, it's like now it's like a combination of I remember my own adolescence and I'm also like feeling really protective of Veda mm-hmm. at the same time mm-hmm. something that really hit me when I rewatched it this time was so the scene like right after Thomas J's funeral where she runs to Mr. Bixler's house yeah, and She's like crying to, and he, he says like I don't know like she says I want to live here, and he says I think your father would miss you, and she says no he wouldn't I can't go home, I was like, like that was really awful. So speaking of like it was really hitting me how bad of a father he was he is like in the last time I watched it, she and he and Shelley get engaged really fast first of all. <laughs> And they handle telling her so poorly. They don't even, like, there's no forethought. Like, there's nothing. Like, just, it's like they're trying to traumatize her. It's really fucked up. I agree. Yeah. And he's, like, really heartless at Tom and Jay's funeral. He's just like, he's gone, sweetheart. He's gone. Like, he just died. Jesus. You're saying exactly what Shelly says to him, literally word for word. I know. <laughs> Open your eyes. She's 11 years old. I love that monologue. Her best friend in the world just died. Yeah. Oh, the, the, what's the last, uh, oh, the last line. So beautiful. She's like, um, life isn't just death. Don't ignore the living, especially your daughter. I cry every time. Ah! Fucking love Jamie Lee Curtis. I also had a question, like, did they have to use their funeral parlor for the funeral? Like, couldn't they have used any other funeral parlor in town? Like, that seems also, really part of like the planning in, about insensitivity. <laughs> I know. Like, and why would they do an open casket? 
And I actually, I will say, like, when I was at my filmmaker brain was like, I actually think it would have been more powerful if they had it closed in the scene. That would have been like, whew. But instead we get Macaulay Culkin in the casket with, like, fake bee stings on his face. Yeah. Um, is Veda a Republican, by the way? That was something that I was thinking about a lot. Like, as an adult? I mean, in the film. Like in the films, because Vita, at the she's end like of five, I mean, you know. What I mean. Well, is she being raised in a Republican family? I should say. Oh. So, because um, at the end, at the end of the first movie, she has that, um, she has that line um, about Nixon. Like Nixon got just got renominated. Oh, yeah, yeah. And as she like, sounds as, excited as, as about as it. Part of like, as part of like, like things are better these days. Like, goes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which I feel like for I, I want to say like the filmmaker is trying to like kind of make a dig a little bit it's just like yeah but we all know now like how that turned out you know what i mean um and then in the second movie when they're in class they're in that english class at her school there's a portrait of nixon hanging up so i mean he was president i guess so i guess that makes sense but i don't know i just i was like wondering like is she a republican are they so republicans it's interesting that you held out on some of these points until after because obviously they i sure did cut, they would have cut against your horror of course i did yeah but the most damning of all which you kind of alluded to but she didn't go oh into god death, is that what why my girl three didn't happen there was mm-hmm. supposed to be a my girl three mm-hmm. and my girl two was so widely panned by critics <laughs> That the bad reception to the sequel put an end to all plans for the third movie. It was supposed to be called Still My Girl. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) And we don't know the plot. But we do know that it died in development hell, which is what happens to a lot of franchises when they struggle. Yeah, there was supposed to be um, a Ghostbuster sequel that died in... No, like another Ghostbuster sequel with the original cast that died in development hell. But this was before... Um, at, well, at least one of the the original Ghostbusters has passed. Um, but maybe it's two, actually. I can't remember. And then, Not Dan Aykroyd or Bill Murray, but... Um, it was, but it was Aykroyd. live. Well, not live, but, you know, on the shelf... At least through 2009. That's bonkers. That's how long they kept hope alive. I mean, I love My Girl so much. Like, I would have kept hope alive. I would have loved to see, like, I don't know. I would have loved to see, like, a series. A series version of this is basically, like, a female Wonder Years, though. Yeah, this... The Wonder Years, My Girl, Stand By mm-hmm. Me. I feel yep. like are these films where, even though Veda's adult voice is like absent from um, My Girl, you still feel like it's there. Yes, yes, um, yes. Well yeah. said. Yeah. Well said. Oh yes, exactly. What is happening next week? What are we doing? Oh, Little Giants is next. Ah. Yeah. All right. Oh, I, I never pressed stop. Yeah, neither did I. We didn't say goodbye to the listeners. Oh. We didn't have like an end end, really. Okay, great. Maybe like in summary what you love about these films. And I'm going to bring my dog into my lap because she's being an asshole. Come here. Come here. Come here. I'll pick you up. I will end 
the way I began. <laughs> Which is uh, musically. Let's do it. But Betty and the Jets, you oh, know. Okay. The music, still in my opinion, for my girl too, is wow. superior. Not not a little. I've got sunshine on a cloudy day. The eponymous song. I mean, arguably those that when it's to cold both outside. Yes, they do play it in both films. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years. And All right. Slow parade of fears without We're out, listeners. We're doing, uh, what are we doing next week? I already forgot. Little Giants. Now Little I Giants! Oh, this is the beginning of our Devin Sawa like, trilogy. <laughs> Little Giants, Now and Then, and Casper. Ooh. It's going to be a lot. All right, farewell, listeners.